Welcome to Breaking Banks, the number one Killing it. Killing it. Killing it. Last week, Alec Johnson and I introduced a new series, Killing It. It's about entrepreneurs that had to face down the most difficult decision. Was it time to sell, shut down, or exit? Well, on the first official episode, we have a candid conversation with Shamir Karkal, CEO of Sila, formerly co-founder of Simple, or as it was known back in the day, Bank Simple. Shamir and I were compatriots pioneering the neobank space and both faced down that hard decision when it appeared there'd be no more funding. Shamir shares the agonizing decision he and his co-founder faced when a term sheet materialized at the 11th hour. I think some of this hasn't been shared publicly before, but Shamir brings a ton of wisdom about the entrepreneurial journey and their wandering through the wilderness. In the second half, Brett King reconnects with Divine, also known as Victor D. Lombard, CEO and founder of Solvent, the tagline, The Future is Freedom. You may remember Divine from a 2022 episode when we interviewed him about a venture with Amazon Web Services Impact Accelerator. Today, we add Brent Chandler, CEO, and Eric Lappin, president of FormFree, to the conversation to talk about their new partnership aligned around the mission to empower underserved demographics. The focus is on lending, specifically in the mortgage space, with new products to empower underserved individuals to get access to credit and a new two-sided marketplace, the FormFree Exchange, connecting lenders and borrowers helping the credit invisibles get loans and institutions to lend without bias. Tech for good, and you know we love that on Breaking Banks. Shri, let's go back to the, the Wayback Machine here. And the year is early 2013. I'm guessing this started for you about the same time. We had just gotten the news from our investors at, at Perk Street that, you know, hey, it's been a great five years. Time to go sell the business. And, you know, I still remember hearing for the first time you guys were in market at the same time. And you know, we had the upside of like, we appealed to kind of middle America, but you guys were Silicon Valley rock stars, you know, kind of putting FinTech on the map. Walk us through like what was going through your mind? What were was the process when you and Josh were coming to this realization? It's like, hey, like we need to go find an exit. And you were far from done you know, with what you're going seeking to accomplish, but what's that process like? Kicking and screaming, if I was to use uh, two words, right? So the way that th that ended up happening um, was uh, we finally got Simple launched in July of 2012, uh, only about two and a half years behind schedule, um, right? And so uh, we raised a lot of money about uh, probably about 13 million at that point when we launched um, and we had a pretty big team we had like 30 ish people i think when when we launched um, and uh, we had a burst of growth and then we figured out that it's just getting people to sign up doesn't help if they don't actually use the product um, and and then we started working on solving the kind of like activation problem which uh, well, and and at, the, at this point, we were on bank pork. And anytime we tried to onboard more than like four or 5,000 customers in a month, their system just broke. We would have like people stuck in a queue for like, we'd, we'd get like more than a thousand people stuck in a queue where they hadn't heard a response for a week. And I'm like, 
you know that that at some point it starts becoming unacceptable right so we were sort of throttled by in our growth by uh, bancorp and at the same time um, we had a huge activation problem where everybody would put 100 bucks spend it and never do another transaction after the second or third one right so we started working on that and i will say that at the time it felt like you know like the sky is falling down and we and, and we, we we got to solve this problem mm-hmm. our activation on our internal metric like bottomed out at like around 15% in september of 12 by january of 13 it was up to like 23 25% and it hit 33% at max and this was an internal metric it was not like the the industry standard one transaction per customer in last 30 yeah, days re- real active. metrics like real metrics yeah. like if you were trying to build a business what you want to put into the excel model around mm-hmm. a real customer not vanity metrics of yeah, they exactly. looked at the login to the app we basically in like a 6 month period went from possibly the worst activation level to probably the best in the industry if you looked across it right like uh, our active customers that percentage of 30 30 percent of co- the cohort that was active were doing more than 30 transactions a month on average right mm-hmm. um and and uh, so it, 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 we, we solved the problem fundamentally by like january of 13 but we were almost out of money um and uh facebook had gone public in 2012 and then had their stock price had tanked and that led to a vc chill um so we kicked off a fundraise process in january of 13 to raise 15 million for a series b um then got a term sheet in february in three weeks time for 25 million way more than we wanted from Warburg Pincus. Uh, and then two weeks of due diligence later, they pulled the term sheet. Mm. And we were like, why? And they were like, yeah, we just decided not to do the deal. And we're like, no, do we find something in due diligence? I was like, no, no, just decided not to do the deal. We're like, what the? And that's when I, that's my, one of my big learnings was that a PE firm, uh, a term sheet is a little bit more valuable than toilet paper. Right. Uh, a VC firm which writes a term sheet expects to close on 98% of the term sheets it writes. A PE firm expects to close on maybe 30% of the term sheets they write. Right. The term sheet is their way of getting into the deal. It's not any indication that they will close it. Right. So there we were in um, sort of early April of 13 uh, with about eight weeks of runway left, uh, a 60 person team, because we had to scale customer service like crazy just to keep up with uh, all the broken stuff on the back end. Um, Business was growing. We had solved the activation problem. Revenue was like profitability at 30% activation was like 6x profitability at 15%. It it was massive, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Everything was beginning to work, but we were out of money. (laughs) And there was no time to go raise another round. On the flip side, our intern inside uh, investors were all sort of seed investors who had stretched to write a Series B to us. Mm-hmm. There was no way they could write a Series C. It was it was impossible, right? Um, so we had to go to them and be like, "Hey, we need an inside round." And they were like, "Look, the uh, we can give you a couple of million, but we can't do much more than that." Um, and you have, I mean, we had always had inbound interest from kind of. Lots of people, we just ignored it. We never wanted to sell. They were like, you, you have to hire a banker and start looking at this inbound interest because we can't, you know, you have like, how much did we have? We had like 
more than 30,000 customers at that point, probably 40,000-ish. Um, you, you can't take the risk that you just run out of money with like all these all these people's money, <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, and forget forget the VC money, right? But at least like customers need a... Uh, so we were like, okay, fine. You give us the, the bridge loan to tide us over for a few months and we'll hire a banker. And Josh and I were like, you know, we'll hit the, the fundraising road again and find another term sheet and... and, uh, and 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 we, we, for us we were like we will work with the banker just because that's what our investors want we're going to go work on getting a, a round together so that's how it actually started in uh sort of june july of 13. and when you were i mean sort of progressing through that process i mean i i hear a lot of stories like this where it it's almost like stages of grief in terms of like we're not quite to acceptance yet like where along that journey of we're going to talk to a banker but then you know we're also going to be looking for more sort of vcs to sort of fund another round like when did that flip and you said okay now we have to like sell i i can go back and find the exact date but it was around uh 6 p.m on i think around january 29th of 2014. that that is an incredibly specific date so so when so what what drove that realization like what 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 was the switch that kind of flipped at that point was it just you couldn't find uh investors that were willing to do oh, another it round was way, it was way worse than that we at that point uh we had i mean it was we got a offer from bbva and that was mm-hmm. how that happened there were so many things then we spent like months and months in like due diligence where they hired a, a banking law firm to do the uh, due diligence and they they tried to do it the way that you know one bank acquires another bank and that right, which is had not no what conception you guys were. of Mm-hmm. No conception of fintech. It was, I mean, we'd get on calls with like 30 compliance people and our like three-person team, right? I'm like, what the <laughs> heck? <laughs> right? um, and and but we we had finally gotten to the point by end of January where the number was pretty much locked in at 117 million. Mm-hmm. The terms are pretty much locked in, and we were just like a week or two away from signing the final docs and closing the deal, right? Right. We also had a term share sheet from a one of the best VC firms on the planet for a 25 million round Mm. at a decent valuation. Mm -hmm. And so we could have walked away from the deal and taken that. And I still wonder what that alternative world would have looked like, right? Given everything that I, but I, that I know now. And so I, and and I was at a conference in in Palm Springs and I, uh, I, I went for, dinner to meet one of my wife's colleagues and as happens she was in their home with my daughter having dinner with them while i was taking calls out sitting outside in the car <laughs> right 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 <laughs> yeah that's 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 uh, all the family things you miss as an entrepreneur where you're like what were you doing when this happened i was on the phone talking to somebody <laughs> so i was on the phone with that investor and with josh and we kind of like went trying to negotiate the term sheet a little bit and, and they kind of they did negotiate it a little bit and gave us a little bit of give and then they told us like this is at the max you kind of have to make a decision mm-hmm. right and and that had been in the works too for a couple of three months at that point right mm-hmm. uh and and so and then josh and i kind of like had to had to bite the bullet and we were like this is it right either we sell in two weeks time or we sign this term sheet and 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 take the money and and keep growing and 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 that's we talked and we realized that like and was it wasn't even a 
an hour long conversation, right? It was like a five, 10 minute conversation with Josh. And we were like, can we actually do the term sheet, right? The entire management team is already counting. Remember, we took 14 million of that 117 and distributed it to 100 employees, mm. not including the founders. Mm -hmm. Right. So we explicitly set out to make everybody other than us rich and we succeeded. Mm -hmm. There were there were like customer service people who walked in to the company thinking after the announcement that was being acquired, who thought they were being fired. And then after a conversation with me, they went out and bought houses in Portland. So it, it was life changing money for not just us, but everybody in the company. The VCs were bought off. They were like, look, we're meeting. We thought, you know, six months ago, we were worried that this was going to go to hell in a, some flaming basket and now you're giving me a four to six x return i'm in yeah, <laughs> right? yeah. uh so, so so and it was cash it was it was a good deal and mm -hmm. and we were like can we walk away from all of that mm -hmm. and just um take the vc money and 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 keep building and there was just too much momentum behind the deal already mm -hmm. right it was like it wasn't really a, even about us we were like oof, we pretty much have to fire a good chunk of the people because they're, they're, they're just going to be like, wait, you, I was going to make 300K and now I get nothing. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, right. Uh, so it, it, it just wasn't realistically possible at that point. You know, things have things have momentum. Right. Mm -hmm. And and once you get to a certain point in the momentum, it takes a huge amount of effort to stop it even. So that's when we kind of like acknowledge the reality that we probably weren't going to do this VC and we were probably going to sell. And yeah, I guess that's it, Josh. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's not like he was in a different place. I was in a different place. We just- It was a short conversation. Yeah. It was a short conversation. We were both like, yeah, are you in the same place? You're in the same place. Yeah, I mean, well, let's go sell it then. And that's what- yeah. I'm curious for people who knew you best and even at a, you know, a great financial exit, but knew that you weren't done building, how did you start to- you know, explain that the uh, the the people to whom it was the hardest was employees, right? And employ I mean, there were you know the senior folk who knew about the deal and had actually helped with like due diligence and everything because I mean, Josh and I could only do the, so much by ourselves, right? Um, and so for them, it wasn't hard to explain because they knew the trajectory of the funding side of the business. They'd worked on the due diligence with Warburg and seen it fall apart and 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 kind of had, I mean, we kept the management team, we took the management team along, right, on this journey. And so they, they knew what was going on and they weren't like, you know, uh, upset about the sale um, because they made a ton of money out of it, right? Uh, it, the, the hardest thing I think was to, to talk to the sort of the, the remaining 90 employees, right? And Josh and I split it up and we spoke to every employee the day of the announcement, which was mm. I think February 16th or something of, so it was like three weeks after, two, three weeks after this, right? Um, and um, and then we were, and then, then we, we had to explain to them that uh, like, this was the, this was kind of the option that made the most sense and it wasn't really um, anything else that needed to happen. And we truly believed, which was true, we truly did believe that this was the best option for the company. And having BBVA as both a strong bank partner, because a lot of our problems throughout the history of the company, and, and now we're looking back on it on the entire history of like FinTech, was that you needed a bank partner. 
and bank partners are heavily regulated and whatever problems they have with regulation that might not have anything to do with you are just going to rebound on you and can easily set your business back six months a year two years and that's death two and a half years to be precise yeah, yep. Uh, and that that's that's like that's the case of death for a startup, right? You right. measure time lost and you lost a week on this, you lost a month on that, just saying that like um you lost two years because higher one got into trouble with the regulator and 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 that now means that Bancorp is swamped. And I'm like, what what's got that got to do with me? I got my business is doing great. I have no problems with any regulator, damn it. Um doesn't help, right? So that kind of thing, um, yeah, so we, we truly believe that having a strong bank partner uh, who was both funding the company and providing the balance sheet and the compliance coverage would allow us to dramatically grow faster. Um, and, you know, we were never in it to become billionaires. Josh and I, from the start, were always like, we do want to make money for employees and investors and everybody. But we really want to fix the world of banking, right? Um, and we were like, we can fix it much better this way. Um, maybe naive in hindsight <laughs> right uh but that's what we believed at that point so i think employees kind of understood that and trusted us that if josh and shamir think the right thing is to sell the business to bbva then then that must be the right thing to do oh and i'm making 50k oh heck yeah i'm in <laughs> bonus bonus right. well and that's a i think that's a good way of putting it right because like there's an element of like practicality and like financial <laughs> outcomes for everyone involved but there's also like the hundred of you, and I remember this very clearly, I was a simple customer back in the day. And one thing that always came through very clearly in everything you guys did was you were very mission driven, like you wanted to fix nice. banking. I'm trying to remember the original uh, text that was on the like website when you were just getting signups and it was like, we're going to build a better bank. Or it was some like really simple statement that was yeah. like really resonated with like thousands and thousands of people, including me. And like I think the the carrying the mission forward to the acquirer, that's a really interesting thing because some I know some fintech founders that exit, they like know from day one like this is gonna die as soon as it goes into this company, but like we're doing this for other reasons. With you guys, you carried that that mission forward and genuinely thought you were gonna be able to kind of continue to build on that. Walk us through like what happened next. Like what what were those next? I can't remember how long you stayed at BBVA after the acquisition, but what was that experience like? So one of the main premises of the um, the acquisition was that we could use BBVA's backend platform. Yeah, uh, yeah. Remember, this was long before anything called a BAS existed. The word BAS didn't exist. I, actually, at this point, I think in somewhere in 2014 is when I first heard the term neobank, right? And I didn't like it back then. I've gotten used to it now. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, but I'm like, so uh, so we kind of had built our own platform on top of a company called TXV mainly, um, and also like using um, some of Bancorp's technology. Uh, but it was a cobbled together mess that barely functioned at the best of times. Uh, and TXV had been acquired by Google, so they exited the industry. So that was a massive source of a lot of our problems, right? Um, and so then we switched to first data, but in the middle of that switch got acquired by BBVA. So we switched from TXV to first data. And as soon as that was done, we then switched from first data to uh, to BBVA. Um, the, uh, and, and so that's why we, for like a period of like three years in there, 60 to 90% of the energy of the engineering team was just on back end, 
like nothing that any customer ever saw and the product frankly stagnated right mm-hmm. um with some mm-hmm. improvements and here and there tweaks and stuff and it was still revolutionary and different enough that it just still carried it carried us through that period from like basically 14 to 17 uh but it also meant that that was the period of time in which like chime caught up with the company right chime mm-hmm. launched and 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 uh and and grew right um and so that so that i th- th- a lot of the the senior management team just basically left after the <laughs> acquisition right. um and and um including me i can't complain about that when i did it myself mm-hmm. um and uh and i actually left simple and moved to bbva which was totally not an earnout related thing it wasn't like um my earnout was very much tied to simple's outcome regardless mm-hmm. of whether i worked there or not right mm-hmm. um and so uh I went to BBVA and I helped them build uh, the platform that Simple transitioned to because the idea that Simple would transition to BBVA was great, but BBVA didn't actually have anything called an API platform or a tech platform. So it was like, how does this actually work? Well, you need to show us APIs. And it's like, we don't have any APIs. <laughs> uh, we're going to have to build some. And then somebody came up with the idea, well, if you're building APIs, why not, why not do it right and sell it to everybody not just simple. And I was like, that's a great idea. Uh, I became an advisor to that. Then I took over that business and ran it. So we built and launched the open platform at BBVA mm-hmm. in the US. And we also launched another API platform in Europe called, which was a PSD2 style platform in Europe. So that was the first PSD2 style platform in Europe. And the open platform at BBVA was the first BAS platform from a bank anywhere mm-hmm. in the US, probably anywhere on the planet. So I can say, and this is between me and Jason that I launched the first Neobank. <laughs> we, we can, we can, first or second, let's be honest yeah. there, right? Um, and uh, I can say that I launched the first PSC2 style platform anywhere on the planet and probably the first BAS platform from a bank anywhere on the planet. Um, and that was before I turned 35. Oh no, before I turned 37, whatever, it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm much older than that now and I've given up trying to like c- c- keep track of these things. Um, so we launched the open platform, simple transition to it. It worked. It was actually one of the smoothest transitions. Um, we we, um, we launched other businesses on it. We even got other customers like uh, uh, Google to sign up to use the open platform at BBVA. But the problem was that, and this is one of the things I just now realized, right? Like the hardest thing in the venture world, in my opinion, uh, is to go from zero to 10 million in revenue. Hmm. Yeah. Right. It is very hard to get to that 10 million number. And if you get to 10 million, you'll probably sail to like 20 to 50. Everything has its own challenges. Every every time you double, it's the new challenge. But I, I feel like zero to 10 is the hardest part. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you get to 10 million, you're like probably a Series B company, maybe depending on, you know, which environment you are, you're like a anywhere from like a 50 to a 500 million company. Maybe if it was 21, you're a billion dollar company. Uh, but 10 million is nothing to a large company. Mm. Like you go to BBVA and they're like, you know, I can tweak my loan pricing slightly and increase profit in the US by 10 million this quarter. Profit. Yeah, they, they can like, they can Guaranteed. find it under yeah. the sofa cushions, right? Yeah. So that, the, the, the thing was that to nobody in the company was anything that the innovation team did going to actually move the needle in terms of profits at any point right Mm -hmm. um and and so the whole like focus that bbva had on innovation from essentially like 
2000, but really from like 2010 to 2020 and trying to kind of take over the world was very much a top-down labor of love or, or, or really belief in the future, which was very much driven by the leadership they had. Um, um, FG and, and, and Carlos, and, and they truly believe that fintech can, technology would change the world of finance. And I, I agree with them, actually. Um, but it meant also that when times were tough, right, as long as times were good, things were good. But when times were tough, are you going to cut the core business that's generating billions of profit? Or are you going to cut these like, you know, um, hanger on platforms, which even maybe they're growing great. Maybe they're going from like 10 to 50 million in revenue, but they're not adding anything to profit. You know, a startup doesn't even think about profitability till it gets to 100 million in revenue, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so nothing that BBVA is doing on the innovation side was close to that. Even simple in 2018, 19, uh, with like, I think, million plus customers, a lot of them active, finally beginning to work again on 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 new product development and uh, and everything was just not anywhere close to being profitable and not even close to being the sort of profitability where it would have meant anything to BBVA's balance sheet. The pandemic came along and suddenly BBVA had to find uh, a few tens of billions in under the seat cushions. <laughs> um, and, and this, I think, is part of like the history of BBVA is like, their strategy has always been great and sort of visionary, like a decade ahead of the rest of the industry, even going back to, you know, decade before. But their timing when they acquire companies and when they sell them is abysmal. Mm. Somehow they always buy at the top and sell at the bottom. So they sold Compass and Simple in like late 2020 in the depth of the pandemic. Right. right? when simple as an independent company would have probably had like a 5 billion plus valuation in late 21. Yeah. Right. Uh, and they basically sold it for nothing to PNC and yeah. PNC was like, PNC is a, has been a very like sort of non forward thinking bank. They're kind of the opposite of BBVA. They just didn't want anything to do with simple and, and basically told BBVA to shut it down before it came over. Right. And so BBVA did, but it was really PNC who drove that. Um, and it's just a disaster because you're like another 18 months and they could probably have sold simple and the the, the uh, actual like the other businesses, um, which were all number one, two, three in their uh, in their industries. They could have probably sold the whole thing for 10 billion. Just the innovation businesses, forget the compass, the traditional bank, which is what they sold for like 14 billion. Right. So it's like you acquired Compass in 2007 at the height of the previous boom, invested billions in it, and then sold it at the depth of the bust in 2020. If you had bought it in like late 08, you would have gotten it for a third of the price. And if you had sold it in late 21, you probably have doubled the price. Yeah. So, you know, there was quite a Twitter now X outpouring as people's simple accounts were being closed. What was going through your head that mm. this thing that you and Josh had like poured your lifeblood into your dreams and passions, you know, as you said, it wasn't about making money. Well, that was important. And you wanted to change lives as investors. You wanted to fix the system. Mm. And in some regard, like you, you failed, they killed it. Right. Granted, you weren't there, but like, how did you feel? And how'd you begin to reconcile that? In a weird way. It felt um, 
with many different feelings because it took a period of months right so um, but like at one at, at some early on it felt like you know when um, you get a call from an ex whom you haven't talked to in years and 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 you realize like how much that used to matter to you but doesn't anymore because there was all these people as you said on twitter who were all about you know simple and i'm like oh my god so many people still care and they still associate me with it even though it's been like six years since i left now right and mm -hmm. six years since i left simple four or five years since i left bbba um, I have a whole new startup which I'm working on and trying to raise money for, uh, and 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 you know, and all these people are are you know telling stories about how much they love Simple and also like being pissed off at me, and I'm like, it's been so long, right? So that was a weird feeling of like it's, it's a blast from the past, right? Yeah. Um, then the other part of it was I was still like Simple was still my primary bank up until like I, I only switched to like one like a month uh before the kind of they finally shut down all the accounts right actually a few weeks before so i was like the, you know i was i was basically account number one um and probably the last account off the platform josh and i you were going to be you were going to be an active user right until the very very end i was an active user up until the last month of like the last 30 day period i was i was still active in that period it's amazing um and and uh and and I had to then figure out, like for for example, one of the features that we had in Simple, which I don't think anybody else uh, like really ever copied well, and I don't know why, was we allowed people to add photos to their transactions. And in the early days, we were almost competing with Instagram. Funnily enough, like we mm -hmm. thought people would attach photos of receipts and keep track, and very accounting-minded me and Josh somehow, uh, but the most of the stuff that people have we did an analysis once one of our product guys did it and nothing to do with receipts receipts weren't even 10 percent of the photos the biggest category of photos that were added to transactions was food people took photos of the food and attached it to the receipt for the restaurant right mm -hmm. um i actually uh used that feature to chronicle my the early life of my daughter so i had photos of uh like the, the the food at the hospital when she was mm. born attached to the receipt uh, early photos of her so i had to go back and download all those photos from simple and make sure that i had them in my google photos because i wouldn't have them anymore otherwise right and right. she is now 11 years old and yeah so the, the the hardest part for me was actually like the actual shutdown and going through and like reorganizing my finances and then realizing like this is freaking exactly why we started this because the rest of the shit is so broken and I didn't truly realize how well we had actually solved it. But for me personally, right now, my financial life is way worse than it was when I was a simple customer. One is one is great, but then one also got acquired and is, is what is it part of Walmart now or something? So I'm like, damn it, you know, and, and I'm like, things have gotten better. But they are still so far from solved. Um, so yeah, it, it it for a period of months it was like you know, uh, just like what has this got to do with me? And then being like, oh yeah, no, this has so much to do with me. That's amazing. Hey, who, who knew the pivot you needed was to be an Instagram play before you know Instagram was so big? You know, that I know you just missed pivot. the boat on that one. Yeah, <laughs> I mean it's still out there, man. I haven't seen anybody combine Instagram and and finances really yet. Um, 
I'm surprised Instagram hasn't tried and I tried and I'm surprised like Chime hasn't tried. <laughs> yeah. So, well, um, yeah, go ahead, Jason. Alex, you go ahead. And then I've got one last question to wrap this up. Well, I think our, our question is probably the same, but um, I mean, so exiting out of Simple and BBVA, I guess the question I was curious about was just um, how did you sort of think about yourself, your identity, your sort of passion for entrepreneurship, having gone through all of that? Because as you said, you know, you you are now on to your next startup. Um, it's, you know, from what I gather, going very well. But like you had to sort of start that whole journey all over again, find a new problem or maybe an extension of a problem that you'd encountered in your last uh, startup to kind of pursue full time. What was what was that sort of emotional journey sort of jumping back into entrepreneurship? So I think... I don't know about other founders, but I, you know, I've, I've, uh, I, there's this quote that comes to mind, right? Like the, uh, a reasonable man uh, adapts himself to the world around him. An unreasonable man persists in adapting the world around him to himself. Um, therefore, all progress is dependent on the unreasonable man. And I have spent, I'd say, you know, whatever, 20 plus years of my life, uh, adult life at least, being very unreasonable. Uh, <laughs> I was I was determined to fix the world's problems. Um, and, and, and I never did anything for the money. And by doing so, I have made more than enough money and, and I've done very little to actually fix the world's problems. Um, so, c'est la vie, right? Um, and, and I... I kind of think I had this a bit of this hero complex. I don't know whether I was like, you know, I am going to fix this, right? Mm -hmm. And it is going to make the world a better place. This this thing is broken and I will fix it. Now I kind of I'm in my mid 40s now and and you know, definitely don't have like the 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 energy level of like a 20 something uh, McKinsey consultant, right? Um and I'm like I slowly come to terms with the fact that the world is in many ways a shitty place and even when i die hopefully like whatever 40 plus years from now it will still probably be a shitty place <laughs> right and and and, it, and if i want to fix the world forget one lifetime i'm not even sure a 50 100 lifetimes would be enough right mm -hmm. there's just just so much that's broken whether it's war climate change uh homelessness like the financial sector itself has like 100 things that are broken about it. Mm -hmm. Guess what? I realize now that I am, you know, I'm, I'm not going to be able to solve any of it. Maybe very, very, very little of it. <laughs> um, and I'm much more okay with that now. Right? I'm like, um, I, am, I am not, you know, I'm not pick whomever, right? Alexander mm -hmm. the Great or whatever f picture f uh, who, who rewrote re re history. Definitely not that person. And I'm like, um, I'm much more now like thoughtful about like, hey, the people I interact with along the way, right? Um, uh, doing things like, you know, just taking care of myself. There was a period of like, a. I used to do a lot of martial arts when I was a Kind of a teenager in my early twenties, mm -hmm. and then for like period of like almost twenty years, I did none because work, startups, kids, life just caught up with me. Now yeah. I'm back. I you know do more exercise, do more jujitsu, and and I'm like I'm not going to like 
I'm going to keep doing that. I'm going to take care of myself because guess what? I'm not young anymore, right? If I don't, I, then not, nobody else will. Um, and I've also realized that like my ability to solve like financial and technology problems does not have to be my identity, right? My identity is whatever I choose to be today. And today, maybe Shamir doesn't want to be or doesn't feel like he's going to be the, the, the greatest fintech founder of all time. Maybe Shamir today is just going to try and, and get the better of this 28-year-old uh, ex-D1 wrestler on the jiu-jitsu mats. Right? Maybe that's Shamir's identity for today. That is such a powerful lesson and ties into something Alex and I were talking about in the opening episode. Last question for you know entrepreneurs that have you know raised money, maybe it was a small amount, a large amount, but they're now facing this existential crisis that so much of their identity is wrapped up around this startup, and they're facing the hard decision, you know, and that decision might say, hey, it's a softer landing and has some you know silver lining to it, like selling to a major bank and getting a paycheck and you know some you know game changing money. It may also mean you know, like, hey, giving up on the entrepreneurial dream altogether. Either way, it's not what you set out to do. For someone who feels like they're standing at that juncture, at the, you know, the, the end of a, a you know, uh, a plank, you know, about to step off to the other side, what advice would you give? It's okay to fail. It's, it's okay. There's, there's, your, the world will not end. Your life will not end. Um, most people's lives will not end because, you know, you you had to shut down your startup. Many, many people have done it before. Many, many people will do it again. Um, you know, it, 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 the, the, we are not, you know, in Gaza or, or Ukraine or wherever else fighting some crazy war, like where literally lives are on the line. Um, there's things can be much, much worse. We live in one of the greatest nations on the planet. We have the privilege of having people who actually give us money just because they think we're smart and on the hope that the 10% probability that we'll return that money to them someday, right? Uh, not even the 90% probability, <laughs> it's much less than that. And, and so the, the fact that you manage to go on this journey at all is amazing in and of itself, right? Um, where that journey ends, Nobody knows. You got to fight the good fight. Um, so much of it is just luck and timing, right? Um, and 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 you, you people like to think it's all about ability. Heck no. I, I I think you need to you need to have perseverance. Without perseverance, you cannot succeed. But how much of success is determined by perseverance? Maybe ten percent. <laughs> it's it's a it's a necessary condition, but not sufficient at all, right? Um, so just 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 like maniacally sticking it out um yeah that that is needed for success <laughs> but that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to succeed you might still fail despite maniacally sticking it out and at some point you do have to kind of take care of yourself so my biggest message to folks is it's it's okay to fail and you are not defined by your successes and you are not defined by your failures right um, it's okay to have a nine to five job and have hobbies on the weekends and, and spend time with family, not the end of the world. 
unemployment is what like less than 4% any good decent startup founder heck any decent startup person should be able to find a job in 6 months i would think no matter what right so yeah it's okay find a job take care of yourself and maybe take another try in a few years time that's totally fine shamir thank you for the honesty around the journey and honestly for as much as you and i have talked both through the process of you know building and exiting i even learned some tidbits about the simple journey that i didn't know so thank Me you too. for taking there that are so time. many more there are so many more um I, I i feel like i need to write a book and maybe i finally will one day hmm? That'll be that'll be the next uh, the next uh, rock that you try to push up the hill. Uh, exactly. Well, we can't uh, we can't wait to read that. Um, in the meantime, yeah, Jason, as you said, Shamir, thank you so much for um, the honesty and for taking the time. This was great. Pleasure. This show is brought to you by Alloy Labs. As much as we love talking on the show, we believe that action is more valuable than talk. Alloy Labs is the industry leader in helping fearless bankers drive exponential growth through collaboration, exclusive partnerships, and powerful network effects that give them an unfair advantage. Learn more at AlloyLabs.com. Alloy Labs, banking unbound. We got a friend of the show back on today. That is Victor Lombardi, also known as AKA Divine. Divine, how have you been, brother? Peace, brother. How are you? I'm good, man. I'm great, man. Thanks for having me again. Yeah, yeah. Um, last time we spoke to you, you'd won some um, major startup. Uh, uh, you know, got into a really interesting incubator um, with your your startup solvent. So, how's that been going for you? Yeah, things is going. Things is moving, man. We just we just got into another one, which I'm which I'll talk about later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For sure. So, um, you've in, you're introducing us to Form Free, who's another team that you came through through that solvent angle into a fintech partnership. Joining us also is Form Free. Uh, with the founder and CEO, Brent Chandler, and Eric Lappin, the uh, president. So uh, thanks for joining us, guys. Thank you, Brett. Um, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm very, very interested. We're going to dive right into um, Form Freeze uh, technology in terms of lending marketplaces and so forth. But I thought I'd start with the story because, you know, you guys are in the, the mortgage space. You do, of, of course, a bunch of lending. You're in the mortgage space. And, I, you know, I, it's funny. I'm even, I, I meet a lot of people in the mortgage business that don't know this. So I'll tell you that did you guys know that Sir Thomas Littleton in the 12th century, century was responsible for putting together the concept of what we now know as a mortgage? Aha, so I got you, right? So this is, this is. let me tell you the story. Um, and I'm not sure if the listeners have heard this story before either, but it's a really interesting one. Um, you know, back in the 11th and 12th century, particularly in Europe, um, there wasn't really a concept of land ownership for individuals. Land was parceled out by the monarchy to people in the court. And then there was sort of common, uh, you know, uh, lands where um, around the towns and castles and so forth that um, you know, the community we live on. Sir Thomas Littleton worked in 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 establishing as one of the uh, lords of of the parliament at the time. Although you know pre 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 uh, the the structure of uh, the legal structure of government as, as we know it today, but he worked on this concept of uh, private ownership of land for individual citizens, and this was um, you know essentially uh, the template that has become you know the way we think about a common property ownership or individual property ownership since then. 
And what was interesting is, um, you know, that he called this vadium mortem in the Latin. You know, he was a legal scholar and so forth. So if you know your Latin, um, then vadium is a sort of pledge or contract, and mortem was death, you know. So I don't know why death was included in that. But, of course, um, you know, I, I you know, I joke about it on the speaking circuit that, um, you know, it's the dead pledge, you know. Um, but uh, how that was translated into French, of course, vadium is uh, gage and death is mort. So you get mort gage or mortgage, and that's where the word mm. uh, mortgage ah, comes from. That's really cool. That's yeah. very cool. So a little yeah. bit of a uh, little bit of history for you guys, Thank and you. then and th- and that of course is why you only get to pay off your mortgage just before you die because it's a dead pledge, <laughs> right? <laughs> anyway, well, that's the thirty year, right? I mean, yeah. thirty year was a yeah, yeah. Probably before that, it was life. Exactly. Yeah. All right. So, um, Brent, um, tell me a bit about um, you know the form free. You know, uh, as a startup, tell me about you know how you guys came to be. You know, where did you get the idea for this as the founder? You know, um, and how long have you been going? And where's where's the company at right now? Sure. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's really uh, an honor and a pleasure to to join you uh, this afternoon. Uh, my brother back here, Divine. You know, he's he's really instrumental in making this happen. And and it's really, truly a divine setup. You know, Form Free, I founded Form Free in 2007. And uh, if anybody knows anything about, you know, the history of uh, our financial system, you know, 2008 was not a really good time to enter a business venture <laughs> of any magnitude, let alone in the mortgage space uh, but, uh, or lending space. Um, but the precursor to that was, you know, just, you know, the, the, there's a big part of my story is just how I was brought up and, you know, detached from uh, a traditional home front, um, you know, served six years in the Marine Corps, learned that that people were the essence of what we were serving. And then into Wall Street, um, capital was what I was serving. And the whole fallout of that, that, you know, that, that learning experience was the genesis of Form Free. And Form Free really stood for a nebulous kind of term, the idea of meaning free of form. And to really truly understand a very simple concept that everybody, and this means everybody in the world, borrows money and everybody has an ability to pay some amount. And we could quantify that empirically and mathematically and really ensure that in a manner of a token. And so representing a human in the form of financial DNA that could truly assess risk. Now, math, computer science background in school, formal education, and then on to uh, the Wall Street Risk was always at the subset of everything we did. It was always understanding the source data and could it be reliable? If it was reliable, I could then take an action. I could buy a But the 2008 crisis sort of proves it wasn't reliable, right? Right. So, you know, unbeknownst to me, the world was coming undone, but I had this great solution. And the great solution was simply understanding a consumer's financial ability to pay. So that was the onset of it. And it, it kind of took a course 
over the last 15, 16 years of proving that out. But the prove out was really kind of a journey through the bowels of uh, the United States lending system, which is governed highly after the crisis by the government, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, so learning through those, those trenches and, and truly pioneering a space where we could collect source data about a consumer, it's their information. They authorize it. They, they, they provide it for the verification to, to get that loan. Well, we were the data carrier. We were simply picking up the source data, ensuring the accuracy, the efficacy of that data, and then re-representing it instantaneously to the lending community as a representation of that borrower. And that had, a, you know, it had a journey of its own. And, and, and so what that served was the initial foray into automated asset income employment verification of the consumer. So if I take it back to your story um, with Littleton, you know, there was a term that was used back then, which was understanding there was a village banker. You familiar with the village banker concept? Oh, yeah. We can even yeah. go to the Medici, Medici uh, days, right, in the 14th century. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, yeah, the village banker concept was, the, you know, from my perspective, was really just there was, a, there was an understanding, there was a relationship. People knew each other. We knew your brother, your sister, your family, your father. So if you didn't pay the loan, we knew where to go, right? And we also knew you were in good standing because the village banker knew everything about you and all the people around you. Um, well, that concept dissipated over the years and, and, and through the auspices of fragmentation um, in, in, in a big system, you have you know, hundreds of companies doing the verifications and compiling all these little fragments of data to assess a person's ability to pay. Well, in essence, what we did was we took it all the way back to the village banker. We brought the consumer with a fully encompassed financial DNA representation of risk that represented them in a way that a lender could comprehend that. And no, I get the, that. The, I get that. Last... I mean, one of the things that I, I found, um, uh, you know, in the prep for this, you sent me through some notes. And one of the things that's sort of really critical to understand if we're going to make housing more affordable and more accessible, particularly for lower income households, it, it's a shocking statistic, but 50 million Americans don't have a credit score, which then doesn't enable them to get access to traditional lending. And that's why we have, you know, 22% or whatever it is that uh, the um, that they uh, uh, that the FDIC has identified as un underbanked in the United States. We're talking about, you know, millions of, of potential borrowers here that face this key data problem in that they, you know, they can't meet the traditional financial um, services uh, hurdles for this. And, and you know, this, this is a key, this is a key issue for us because, um, you know, we, we know today, um, you know, there, there's a very clear um, there's very clear math behind this that you actually, you know, a credit score is actually not a good predictor of default risk um, in, in most instances these days when it comes to lending. So we just need better data models. So maybe, um, Eric, maybe I can just jump to you for a second. Talk to me about the data models that you've built that sort of, um, you know, power your lending engines that are, that are in, at the core of this. Yeah, so as Brent said, you know, 
when the business started, it was more about how do we how do we look at source data to determine an ability to pay? And for over a decade, we've been looking at data, source data only, whereas the, the traditional lending system we see today has, has not done that until just very recently. And when we're looking at the data that comes in, it's first and foremost, permission by the consumer, which also brings us into you know, what we were talking about earlier, but we're starting to see more of a push of how do we have the consumer's data uh, stay in control of them, uh, share that data when they want to share it and have it be as, as, as a valuable use. But on top of that, you have an artificial intelligence that, that shows what is the ability to pay. So how do we look at that with the way the system is today with determining it? And like you said, with that, that 50 million people that we have, low or no FICO score, it's, it worked when it worked for decades ago, but there's, there are better technologies out now. There's better uses of artificial intelligence that can remove bias. And there's better data, and that data is the source data that comes permission by the consumer. So we look at that as the as the impetus of creating an ability to pay by looking at cash flow, looking at um, discretionary income. But the key here is is removing the bias, and that's one of the biggest issues that we've seen historically. That if you have to be in debt to get more debt, it it doesn't work, and it's definitely not right. a sustainable model. And it's definitely leaving a lot of people out. It's not an inclusionary model. So, yeah. you know, the the point is that we look at this as what's been done historically here for decades is one vector of looking at it. Can you handle debt? So there's a score that tells you that. But there's a lot of people that don't want debt. They don't want to live in that type of environment. They want to utilize their cash, their earnings from multiple sources of income to show I can afford this. But well, I don't so want this, to pay interest the, on it. Yeah, this, I mean, um, one of the things that's so under um, appreciated in the U.S. lending market is cash flow data. So, um, you know, like using the the example of uh, Alipay and their SME lending business. So, um, in twenty twenty two, they lent to over fifty million small small medium enterprise businesses in China. And they had half of the NPL ratios of the major banks in China. They now own 44% of the SME lending market. And they have this product called 310. Three minutes to apply, one second approval, zero humans involved. And the way they're able to do that with such lower risk is just they because they're connected into the Alipay wallet ecosystem. And so they understand an individual's cash flow. And, and cash flow is where we can really get the insight of affordability. And I'm astonished as to why banks are still asking you for things like financial statements and tax information when all of that cash flow data is, is readily available for these types of assessments. It's so we got into Hello. bad habits. Go ahead. Brad. Yeah. So in twenty in two thousand ten, you know Dodd Dodd Frank and introduced the uh, it was introduced twenty fourteen it went into law but in that law it reintroduced residual income in lieu of DTI and gross and in twenty eleven that's when we embarked on building our residual income knowledge index and essentially you know it's a process in the, in, in any big system that's handling you know trillions of dollars of of, of lending. But um, we've made some breakthroughs. And so we're pretty excited about you know, the future. Where 
Ricky, which is the residual income knowledge index, is going is is looking at the the holistic human as opposed to just the credit arm, you know, I mean, or their leg or their foot. So holistic understanding of a human understands discretionary income, residual income. And we can quantify that empirically, mathematically, and literally from the source in immutable data form on chain, um, store that. So do you guys use, do you, do you guys use aggregation services to collect that information or how, how are you getting that sort of source data? We do. We do. We, we actually partner with a, a group called MX. Yeah, Mary we know X-ray. MX. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I know the founders. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So uh, the founder CEO is actually on our board, Ryan Caldwell. Good oh, Ryan's Brian. a good pal. Say hello to him. Yeah, he's, he's, he's awesome. Um, and so, you know, we've been, we've been partners for some time. They're, they're a phenomenal company. I actually have been in aggregation for over 25 years. So this okay. is where... In early 2000, I got uh, engaged in data aggregation with Cash Edge, which is now a part ah, of Fiserv. Right? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I I worked with the GZO guys on the Cash Edge stuff as well mm-hmm. for a time. So, hey, that, that's that's great. You know, um, I, you know, there's two really good stories that illustrate this. Not beyond the cash flow stuff is is Lending Club was able to show that just knowing when you pay your whether you pay your phone bill on time was like something like ninety percent a better predictor of default risk than a credit score and the other one mm. and the other one coming out of china because they don't they don't do credit scoring the way we do in the states was that people who keep their phone charged are much lower risk profile mm. so by you know when they when they're looking at people using a you know online form or a mobile app to do an application if they can get the phone ch- level of phone charge that was a really um you know significant indicator of uh, risk tolerance uh, that the individuals have, and so it's it's interesting. Hey, Divine, you know, um, last time we spoke to you, you had uh, just um, been invited into the inaugural cohort of Amazon's AWS uh, Impact Accelerator for uh, Black Founders. Um, you know, you managed to uh, get some support from um, Ben Horowitz and um, you know A16Z and so forth in terms of solvent. So tell me about how you know. Obviously, there's an overlap here in terms of the audience for Solvent and and for for uh, Form Free. But tell me how you know this partnership came about, and um, you know where where you enter into the the uh, puzzle here. Yeah, yeah. Um, thank you. Uh, I actually um, I met Brent and Eric while I was speaking out at MX MX Summit in Utah. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, we had a great experience, and I was on stage, and Brandon approached me after I was done speaking, and he told me some work he was doing um, with individuals who were incarcerated, because, of course, I shared my story, my background of being someone who was incarcerated and broken into technology and now being a techpreneur. And um, I eventually went to a meeting with, with uh, Eric and Brent, and I heard, I heard Brent's story about what he was building and I was just, I was blown away actually by his personal uh, story and journey to building what he's building here at Form Free. And I immediately saw uh, the synergy and I, I wanted to explore that. Me and Eric started talking. Um, he, has, he has a love for hip hop music like I do. So that led to um, us connecting on that. I eventually invited them out to, um, to Ben Hall, which is... Uh, Paid them full foundations, uh, grant hip hop grandmaster awards. We were on uh, Rock Him and, and Scarface, 
two legends within hip hop. Wow. Um, they joined me out there. We built this um this relationship and rapport uh very, very fast. And then next thing I know, I was um presented the opportunity to actually come within Form Free as head of culture. And uh it was a no-brainer because as you said earlier, we are serving the same demographic, the same target audience. We want to empower people who are unserved and underserved. And a good point that you made earlier, when you think about people who are unserved and underserved, especially in the black community, they live, they live within a cash economy. Yeah, yeah. Right? Everything's cash. Their money's hidden under the bed somewhere. Their money's, yeah, yeah. <laughs> their money's in the shoebox, right? Um, they don't trust um, financial institutions um, for, for good reason. However, um, I saw an opportunity where if I could create something that had credibility, that was that was that was um, able to be trusted, especially for this demographic, that I could start mining and mapping this data in a way that has never been done before for the black community, and and that could uh, allow us to make better, more innovative and empowering um, financial technology products, such in the sense of when we think about what what Form Free is doing with um, with Ricky and Passport. Yeah, no, that sounds great. Um, it's interesting that you guys came together at the MX Summit. It's that's uh, it's pretty wild. So, um, Brent, I do want to you know let's dive into um, the the model a little bit more in terms of the business. Um, you know, you've got that that great case study that we talked about earlier, um, the uh, um, the Guild Mortgage piece, and um, you know the 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 sort of addressable market of uh, what do you call them? The invisibles. Right, um, yeah, that that don't, invisible. yeah, that aren't, yeah, credit invisibles that aren't seen by the traditional system. Of course, this overlaps with what what uh, Divine's talking about. But just give us an idea of of the traction at Form Free. You know, um, you know, what are your lending partnerships look like? You know, can you talk about the volume of lending you're handling today and where that's going? And um, you know, just give us a bit of uh, an idea of the traction that you you're getting. Yeah, sure. Um, and before I do that, I just want to kind of build off of, you know, Divine. And Please. When, when, you know, Divine, when, I, when, I, when we were at this conference, we were at a DEI session. And, you know, there were some usuals up on stage and, 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 some, and some new folks. And there was one guy in the center that I didn't recognize. And, uh, you know, it was, it was kind of an early morning setting and, and, you know, just kind of getting our day started, half paying attention, checking mail, what have you. Um, and I kind of just dozed off a bit. And then I heard something that I'd never heard. And when Divine started speaking, it was this passion. It was this authenticity. It was different than everything I had heard. So I immediately peaked up. And that was really when I said, I need to know this person. And that was really the incarnation that, you know, uh, synchronicity brought him to the next meeting. And, and then the rest is history, as, yeah, you, yeah. as they say. Love that. Uh, Love we that story. very closely very early on. And as you know, MX is a special place. But, yeah, traction. I mean, so, so you have to think about Form Free as a mission-oriented company. It's technology with a purpose. And the mission truly is, as we understood the exclusionary um, discriminatory practices that are happening in our country, not, not only since the inception of the country, but even 
even further closer, in 1968, um, the Fair Housing Act uh, was introduced. Well, the Fair Housing Act, to this point, we have a widening wealth gap between the African-American households and the white households. A widening yeah. wealth gap. Major issues with, with uh, home ownership, accessibility, and so forth. And it's just getting worse and worse, right? And so, you, so we found the dot. We found the dot. So you have a, whether it's intentional or unintentional, I would argue one way, but I'll just leave it for the, uh, the audience to decide. But you have a, a three-digit score, which represents the divide. You have 86% of the black households in this country have a 680 FICO or lower. The average FICO closed in this country in 2022 was a 750 for home ownership. Yeah. 86% with a 680 or lower and a 750 was the average. That's your gap. So we had to address the gap. Bottom line, we look at, we had to jump out of the system and go to the consumer. So the first three quarters of our company, the have been serving the businesses, B2B to C. So the technology was embedded in over 3,500 lenders that produced over 4 trillion in loan verifications. We worked with Rocket Mortgage, the largest, UWM, second largest, and, and on down the line, Loan Depot, G-Rate. The IMBs, the banks, the credit unions, we worked with everybody. We also received the world's first guarantee from the United States government. It's called Rep and Warrant Relief Day One Certainty from Fannie Mae. That was also coupled by Freddie Mac. And these continue, these efforts continue, proving out the source data. But no, what so, we also so you guys, saw so, during COVID. Sorry. No, so would you describe yourself as a data marketplace or what's the what's the right way to position? Yeah, this? no, I don't we take the data and then represent the consumer. But but what we saw in COVID what came out of COVID, we began to see how our residual income knowledge could literally close that gap. We began to see that bias was absolutely a part of the lending system. But by removing bias, we could look absolutely. at an individual as a human without the gender, without the race, without the socioeconomic background. So what we do is we, we took it out of the bowels of the business and drove it to the consumers. Since we've launched Passport, um, I'm proud to say that we've got 2.2 million interested parties. We've, we've just started this week. So the, the app is brand new. It's in the app store. I'd encourage anybody who, who really Home is free interested passport, in understanding. Right? Bar, it's called the Passport Wallet in the app store. And it's truly a, an encompassing understanding of borrowing power, ability to pay. We call it know before you go, man. You should know how much you could afford before you even talk to a lender. Right. And then that if you're ready to go, you can go and get a get an offer. How does that work? You, you simply select get offer. And the coolest part about the system, Brett, is like we take that medallion that represents me without my name, without my PII, without any bias associated with it. And we built an exchange. And that so you tokenize, you tokenize the data. We tokenize the data. It's built on Bitcoin. The blockchain. I got it. Or anchored on it. Anchored on it. So when that medallion, we we go, we got to be careful with those words in the mortgage industry, let me tell you. And the banking industry as well. So it's it's less about how we do it, it's more about that it's secure, it's safe, and that it's immutable. That medallion also carries no bias. So when it goes into the exchange, 
which is the form free exchange, um, lenders can now view these medallions and they can build and fill their, rep, uh, their portfolios with loans that match their criteria. So we're matching on a one-to-one -one basis. Yeah, I get it. A consumer and a lender. Well, guess what? On December 13th, the TCPA ordered by the FCC, FCC just decided that the lead generation space is going to change. No longer can you generate one lead and blast it out to 300 lenders who can all robocall you and pummel you for weeks and weeks or months. Yeah, so that's going to end come in April. So our one-to-one -one mm -hmm. match preempts that and delivers a TCPA FCC compliant. Uh, system. That's a it's lot of acronyms. Possible. That's a lot of acronyms, Brent. But we we get the uh, we get the love. Um, so uh, Eric, um, you know, let's talk about the marketplace for a bit. Um, you know, I'm a futurist in this space. One of the things I describe, um, you know, frequently is is this scenario of the, you know, walking into a listed property with your smart glasses in a few years and getting a home financing offer directly as you walk in. Because I know I know for some time you've been looking at a property and, um, you know, you've been doing Google searches and you've got a property yeah. app on your phone and all of that. So that can be a trigger. But this proposes that these marketplaces are no longer run so much as a human applying for a mortgage and then doing matching, but in fact that the AIs are doing that work. And we can see a path to that now where AI agents for the individual and an AI agent on behalf of the lender, these are going to work in concert in a marketplace like what Form Free is doing. Is is that sort of, is that too aggressive a sort of view of the roadmap that you guys are looking at, or does that sort of describe the potential end state? No, it describes it. I mean, as we build a new system in which people are in control of their digital financial lives, we have to look at fixing identity. And the greatest part of the internet has been democratization of information. So the way we view it is the world today is either embrace or fall behind between traditional finance or TradFi and where we're going in the future with, with decentralized finance, right? So you have TradFi meets DeFi, and you have to make sure that anything, especially in the United States, that that the regulatory uh, and compliance controls are still in place, which they are. What we're saying is make sure that that identity stays with me as the consumer and remove the PII, as Brent said, PII meaning personal identifiable information, because loans are given on a holistic view, not on things like anything that can be discriminated against. So remove age, yes, sex, yes. color, remove all that, tokenize that information. We call it a medallion. And the medallion is generated from Passport, which educates consumers to use their own data to understand their borrowing capacity. And as you just heard, it complies with FCC regulations, first of its kind, because what we've seen historically here is people get bombarded. I'm sure it's happened to you, Brett. It's happened to me. It's happened to all of us. As soon as you start looking for something oh, no, in the loan business, 50 phone calls. I think Brent had 120 emails, texts, and phone calls he was telling me one day. And it's it's absurd. So now we're saying, let's take this information, go to the top before I even know who I'm going to be speaking with. Let the lender present an offer through this exchange. And then the consumer can decide, I want to go with this offer here. And then boom, there's a match. The PII is then sent. The two then connect and they're matched and they can start doing business together. Sounds like a match made in heaven. Yeah, no, it is. <laughs> and awesome. You know, this is for all lending, but as you were talking earlier, eighty-one percent of all properties in the market today are considered, uh, you know, unaffordable. Yeah. You have 
73 well, this, percent of this is a different problem we could have an entire yeah. show on uh, you know housing affordability in the states and real wage growth and inequality and so forth that's part of the the fabric of this problem that we have to deal with and the problem in the us generally with uh, you know inequality um and you know that you know it's it's too big of a topic for us to tackle on this show but it is uh, you know i i'm i'm very glad to see you guys making housing and lending and and not just it's not obviously just mortgages because you guys are doing car loans and other things like that making this more accessible but not in the way that it was during the subprime crisis which was just creating more risk to the market and indeed putting a lot more financial pressure on people in the lower income categories you guys are doing it in a smart way so they can get access to you know financing that matches their you know all of these different income sources they have and the and the data we have without putting them at risk which i think is 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 a a really wonderful um ethical um positioning for you guys so uh, brent how if people want to find out more about form free the marketplace and the stuff you're doing um you know how would they do that yeah absolutely the uh the form free website is formfree.com encourage folks that are interested in checking out the app to check it out in the app store android it's the, the passport wallet and uh, we'd love to talk to you. Just hit us awesome. up. I'm all over LinkedIn as well. I see yeah, you there absolutely. too. Absolutely. Yeah. And and Divine, if people are trying to follow follow what you're doing lately, what's the best way to stay in touch? Yeah, I'm on social media, Divine, fourth letter, as well as uh, solvent, uh, justsolvent.com. Reach out, tap in. Awesome. And Eric, you're on LinkedIn, I presume? Yeah, on LinkedIn, Eric Lappin, and then... Uh... Elapin at formfree.com. Look, look forward to speaking with anyone that wants to learn more. Fantastic. Well, it's been great to have you guys on the show and uh, Divine, always wonderful to have you back on my friend and, and uh, please uh, keep in touch and, and uh, you know, let us, let us uh, follow the journey. Um, you know, very interested in the work you guys are doing on the AI front. So if, you know, you have some, you know, big advances in that space that you want to come back and talk about, um, you know, I, I think this, marketplace model of this you know i i look i think if i you know if you guys can develop this out i could see an apple or someone else coming along and buying this because if you're going to be a gatekeeper for offering real-time embedded you know lending experiences this is sort of the place it starts so um good luck with this and uh, sounds sounds really uh, really interesting so thanks for joining us on the show today thank you Brett. thank you brett appreciate you brett that's it for another week of the world's number one fintech podcast and radio show, Breaking Banks. This episode was produced by our US-based production team, including producer Elizabeth Severins, audio engineer Kevin Hersham, with social media support from Carlo Navarra and Sylvie Johnson. If you like this episode, don't forget to tweet it out or post it on your favorite social media, or leave us a five-star review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Facebook, or wherever it is that you listen to our show. Those actions help other people find our podcast, and in return, that helps us build an audience that can be supported by sponsorship so we can continue to provide you with our award-winning content every week. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you on Breaking Banks next week.